Oh, hey, Saul Company. Thanks for that. Yeah. No, 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 it's fine. It's fine. fine. I'll just be up here by myself. It's okay. <laughs> uh, my name is Jake, and I'm one of the elders at Candeo, and so I don't get the chance to, to talk to you guys a lot, at least in this context. Um, and so what I want to do is at Salt Company and, and at Candeo, we believe that there is a God. And we believe that that God has spoken and that he has spoken through his word and that he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save you and I because we're enemies of God. And that's a big problem. And every week when we come into this place, whether it's on Sunday or on Thursday, we look to the word of God to tell us about this God and what he has done for us in the most beautiful of ways. And we're going to get into the Bible, but I figured since I don't get the microphone a whole lot, and since I have it now, and you kind of have to sit here and just listen to whatever I say, I, <laughs> I, I wanted to take just a few minutes to, if I could download five things into your brains, all right, these are five things that I would want to just, just straight up download. I don't have a verse I don't have a chapter. We'll get into the Bible, but it's just five things that I think that you should know, and I think it's important, and like this is eight, eight years out of college, Jake, just like saying, like I found these things to be true. So I'm just going to rattle these off. I hope it's helpful. Uh, if not, just hang in there. All right, number one, it's better that you graduate single than that you settle and be married to a loser for the rest of your life. Number two, your first job right out of college won't give you the feeling of fulfillment and impact you're wanting. This doesn't mean that your job is bad. It just means you have to be patient. That's, that's true. Your first job out of college, you're going to go, this isn't what I thought it would be. It's like, yeah, welcome to life, right? Like when I got a bonsai tree, this is a side note. So I, I was living in Chicago at the time, got a bonsai tree, named her Bonnie, Bonnie the bonsai. What happens when you buy a bonsai tree, I found this out later, is that when you, it lives in a greenhouse, right? You buy it, take it home, set it in front of your window, this is going to be awesome. Bonnie loses all her leaves, all of them. I thought I killed her. I'm like, how did I kill her? I just brought her to my apartment and just like put it, I thought that's what you wanted, right? Like, like sunlight and water. No, I thought she was dead. She wasn't dead. She was just shocked. Like, ah, the world. <laughs> that's, that's college life, okay? Like you're in a greenhouse right now. When you get out, you're going to be like, ah, the world. <laughs> just chill out. It's not. It'll be okay. You haven't died. You're just getting used to it. Okay. This is taking longer than I thought it would. Number three. God's will for your life has way more to do with your character than your career. Stop overthinking it. God cares way more about who you are than what you do. Okay? Number four, you aren't a victim of your schedule. You have enough time to do the things that you really value. You have enough time to do the things that you really value. Even if those things that you really value are Netflix, and Snapchat, 
You're not a victim of your schedule. All right. Number five. Let me see how this came up. There we go. If you care more about knowing and loving Jesus than your boyfriend does, you should break up with him. <laughs> see, number one. Like, your boyfriend shouldn't be your mission field. Okay? Like, if you think it's your job to be the Holy Spirit in the life of your boyfriend, like, you're not God. And you should break up with him and let the Holy Spirit do what only he can do. You might actually be hindering that from happening. Okay. Got that out of my system. We're going to take a hard right. My right, your left. Okay. Have you ever... Uh, had a situation where you've been texting with your friends and your phone has auto-corrected something for you in like kind of a weird way, you know? Like your, go- like your girlfriend texts you and is like, does this make me look fat? And, you- and you're like, no. And it auto-corrects like, moo. <laughs> like something like that. <laughs> you cannot text fast enough to recover from that, right? Like... And it's funny when it happens once, you know, because you can get into kind of these kind of weird things. But if it happened over and over and over, and if your phone all of a sudden decided, like, no, I'm, I'm going to say what I think you should say. And you couldn't, like, it just, it just overtook what you were saying. You'd get a new phone. Because you'd be infuriated. Now, why is that? What is that feeling within us when the thing that we have doesn't do what we want it to do? What, what is that feeling? It's because deep down in all of us, we know that ownership determines purpose. Right? Ownership determines purpose. The reason we get annoyed when our phones consistently make decisions for us is because in that moment, it's as though the phone has forgotten who owns who. Right? We expect our cars to drive where we steer them. We expect our Netflix to play what we choose. We expect our phones to text what we type into them. And you, don't, you may have walked in here like not into the church thing, not into the God thing, whatever. You don't even have to be religious to agree that ownership determines purpose. If you own something, then you naturally assume, like, I get to determine what that thing does and what it's used for. And tonight, as we continue to walk through 1 Corinthians, we're going to see that this, is, that this is exactly how God views your physical bodies. God cares about what you do with your bodies for the same reason that you care about what your phone does. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 6. And I want to show you from 1 Corinthians 6 how ownership determines purpose and what God has to say about that. And we're actually going to pick up in verse 3. Uh, verses 1 through 6 are about believers not taking other believers to court. Okay, And I, I'm, not, I'm not skipping that because it's not important, but I think really to get into the meat of chapter 6, we want to start in verse 7. So 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7 It says this, and this is why he says when he starts off in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Here, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, 
nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now stop, now stop right there. Notice, words in the Bible really matter, okay? Notice that it says two times, it bookends this list of things that he's saying, like all of these, all of these people won't inherit the kingdom of God. Notice that it doesn't say earn. It doesn't say they won't earn the kingdom of God. It says they won't inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the thing about that. You don't earn inheritances, right? Like, like when my parents die, I will receive an inheritance, but it's not because I've worked for it. It's because I'm, I'm in the family. I'm a son of my father and of my mother. Therefore, I get their inheritance. Paul isn't describing qualifications required for entrance into the family of God, right? Like, like, this, like this is the entrance examination. Like if you want to be in the family of God, do you do, do, you do this, 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 and this? Check yes, check no. And, and based on how we grade that, that'll determine whether you're in the family. No, he's not saying that this is some sort of entrance exam. What he's saying is that people who continually embrace these practices, these lifestyles, prove through their continual practice and celebration that their nature hasn't been transformed by Christ. Now, this isn't talking about people who genuinely fight with all of these things that he just said. Now, this is talking about people who celebrate such lifestyles and say that they're permissible. And then they practice them under the banner of it's okay because Jesus loves me. Like, that's what he's talking about. This isn't saying that if, if you struggle with any kind of sin that you're not in the family of God. This is saying that if, you, that if you practice these things and celebrate these things and embrace these things, that it's probably an indicator that you weren't in the family to begin with. But in the profound words of cultural theologian Ed Sheeran, I'm in love with the shape of you. We push and pull like a magnet do. <laughs> Although my heart is falling too, I'm in love with your body. O-I, O-I-O, I, O. I've never understood that part. But that's what your culture sells you, right? Like your culture says to you every day that you are your sexuality. That you are your body. You are your image. You are how you look. You are how attractive you are to the opposite sex. Like your body and your sexuality are primary to who you are. It's the most important thing about you. Your sexuality is what defines you. But Paul in verse 11 totally obliterates that. Check that out. Verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Do you see that? Were, past tense, were, hey, Corinthian believers, 
That's who you were, that whole list that we just read. That's who you were, but here's who you are. You were dirty, but now you've been washed clean. You were enemies of God, but now you've been given a seat at the table. You stood guilty before a holy God, but now you've been given the righteousness of Christ. Corinthians, Paul, don't forget who you are. And Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, is saying tonight to you, salt company, don't forget who you are. Your identity, and this is going to be the drum that we hit through the rest of this series, your identity is rooted in Jesus Christ. That's who you are. The most important thing about you is what God says about you. Not what the culture says about you. Not how the culture defines your sexuality. Verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. What's going on here? All right. So your Bible translators put some of these things in quotations, right? All things are lawful for me. This was a common argument in Corinth at the day, during the day. Like all things are lawful for me. Food is meant for the stomach. Here, here, here's what was going on there. The Corinthians were justifying their sexual immorality by diminishing human sexuality to the level of, of pure physical desires and needs. Like what they were saying was, was my sexual desires are equal to me being hungry. Like, like when you get a little hangry, right? Like you get that kind of like rumbly in your tumbly, huh? And you go and get some Taco Bell. Where's Steven? There. Or if you've got, like, class, you go to Taco John's. No? Sorry. You get what I'm saying, though, right? You get hungry, you go eat. Because if you don't, you'll die. And that's, what, that's essentially what the, what the Corinthians were saying. Like, like, when I'm hungry, I go eat. I've got this desire, I'm just gonna go fulfill it. They equated that with sex. Like, and I've got these sexual desires, and so I just need to go fulfill them however I, however I can do that. It, it turned into a transaction. They reduced sexual intimacy that was designed for the context of marriage. They reduced it to a purely physical activity. But what God is saying here is that sex is not just a physical thing. You are not just your sexuality, and your body wasn't made to fulfill your physical desires. Your body was made for the Lord. And so what you do with your body has tremendous spiritual implications. That's what this is saying. What you do with your body affects your soul. It affects your soul. And he continues, Paul continues to fight against this mindset in verse 15. He says this, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I take then the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Don't, don't miss what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here is that your physical bodies are members of Christ. Like are, are, are like arms and legs and kidneys and lungs. Like your physical bodies are physically members of Christ. And, and, and where do we see that? Look again at verse 17. Let me find it. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Contrast that or add that to verse 15 where he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Here's what he's saying. Paul is saying that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul, that you are united with Christ. There is a union with Christ that happens, that you are so united with Christ that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Christ. When God looks at the state of your soul, he doesn't see you. He sees Christ. And that union with Christ is so powerful that it also transforms the purpose of your body. So that even though when, peop- when, when we see each other, we don't see each other's souls, we see what each other does with our body. So when God looks at us, he sees Christ. What Paul is saying is that when the world looks at you and what you do with your bodies, do they see Christ, are you, do you recognize the union that you have with Christ, that you are united with Christ in such a way that when God sees you, he sees Christ, and that when others see you and what you do with your body, they are to see what Christ would be doing with his very own physical body. That's what Paul is saying right here. You, you don't have the power. Even if you don't agree with me, you don't have the power to separate your body from your soul. They are connected and intertwined in the way that God sees you is both. He transforms both, not just your soul, but also the purpose of your body. What you do with your body is not just a physical activity. It is, it is a spiritual activity. What you do with your body isn't just a physical activity. It is a spiritual activity. Look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but, sexual, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So we, we have to ask real quick, because I, I know this is going to be a question. What is sexual immorality? I'm supposed to flee from it. What is it? Here's just a working definition of sexual immorality. It's any sexual activity that you engage in outside the context of marriage. Any sexual activity that you engage in outside the context of marriage. So does this mean that sex with your boyfriend is wrong? Yes. 
What about oral sex? Yes. What about masturbation? Oh, you mean sex with yourself? Yes. What about pornography? Oh, you mean watching other people have sex? Yes, and, and here's the thing, here's the problem with this. We, can, we could go on all night of, with, with all of your, well, what about, what about, how far is too far? But here, here's the problem with that question as your starting point. One is that none of us are creative enough to think of the ways, to think of every way that lustful humanity can express their sexual immorality. None of, even combined, if we just spent all night trying to think of all the ways that you could, you could express sexual immorality, we're going to miss something, right? So if, if you're looking for a list, I can't really honestly give you a list of what you should and shouldn't do with your boyfriend because I'm not smart enough to, to you're, you'll figure something out that I didn't think of. But here's the other reason why, why that, that whole, well, how far is too far, what can and can't we do thing why that's a bad starting point. It's because, biblically, if we look at what the Bible says about your sexuality, it has way less to do with what you are permitted to do or not do. It has way less to do with your permission. And it has everything to do with your identity. It has everything to do with whose you are. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Nobody runs into a burning building because they like the atmosphere or because they think it's nice, that it's, it's warm. Nobody runs into a burning building for the heat. Why? Because fire is great in its appropriate context, right? We all know this. In a fireplace, awesome. Not in my fireplace, problem. <laughs> Big problem, right? Flee from sexual immorality in the same way that you would flee from your apartment if it were burning down because the fire is outside of the context in which it is actually helpful and safe and enjoyable Flee from sexual immorality. And yet, many of you willingly put yourselves in situations where sexual immorality could do nothing but flourish. You know the schedule of your roommates. You know when they're going back home for the weekend. Sexual immorality and loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength cannot coexist. Like, like can we just be honest here and just stop kidding ourselves? Okay? It, if you want to pursue sexual immorality and be a follower of Jesus, I just want to give you the freedom to just pick one. Just pick one. If, if you really want to pursue sexual immorality, then do it. Like, why are you here? You're wasting your time. Like, you could be pursuing that right now.
But don't think that you can live this kind of half-life where you pursue sexual morality in all the variety of ways that you can with your boyfriend or with your computer screen or with whatever, and then think that you can live a life wholly devoted to Christ. There is no category for that. And so for me, I just want to give you the freedom to either follow after Christ or pursue your sin wholeheartedly. Go all in. Seriously, do it. At least you won't be lying about it. We're to flee from sexual immorality. Why? Verse 19. This is so good. This is so good. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price, college Christian. And what was that price? What was the currency that God used to purchase you? God used his most expensive form of currency. Like, 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 the, like the largest bill that he had in his wallet. He used the very blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ was nailed to a Roman cross and he was beaten unrecognizably, blood running down his naked body. And as he hung there and absorbed the wrath of God for your sin, he was crushed by the wrath of God the Father on your behalf. He was crushed like grapes in a wine press, like under the pressure of the wrath of God for your sin. He did nothing wrong, but he who knew no sin became sin so that when he went to the grave crushed under the wrath of God, he didn't stay crushed, but he rose again three days later within his hand, your righteousness, and he hands you his righteousness. So that when he became sin, you might become the righteousness of God. And so for for any student in here who's a follower of Jesus and you're asking, do I have worth? Do I have value? Are you kidding me? Do you know how God has purchased you? The great worth of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ says something tremendous about you. Don't you know who you are? If you are in Christ, you are a son, you are a daughter of the Most High. You have been bought with the price of God's most expensive currency, and your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the temple? Paul, as he's writing this, is pointing back into the Old Testament understanding of the temple. Do you remember? The temple was where God lived. And God is holy. 
And so there was a part of the temple called the Holy of Holies where there was only one person who could enter that place once a year. He's called the, the high priest and he entered with the blood of bulls and goats. And once a year he would go in with the blood of bulls and goats and pour it out on the Ark of the Covenant as an atonement for the sins of the people so that God's holy wrath wouldn't demolish the people. And then Jesus Christ died and entered the Holy of Holies, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. And he poured his own blood out on the heavenly tabernacle, atoning once and for all for our sins. And what Matthew 27 says is that when Jesus, as Jesus hung on the cross, as blood is pouring out of his body, as he is atoning for your sins, the curtain that separated everyone else from the presence of God was ripped from top to bottom. Heaven was coming down to earth so that there would no longer be separation between God and man. And so that God's dwelling place moved from being in a building to being in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Just like what Nils was saying earlier. God himself dwells in your physical bodies. You were bought with a price. God handed you Christ's righteousness and made you holy. You are united with Christ. And so do you want to know why your sexual desires are so strong? And do you want to know why that it feels so good, at least for a fleeting moment, to satisfy them, even when it's outside the, the structure of marriage? Do you want to know why that even, like, sex even feels good? Because God designed it. Right? Like, sex isn't bad. Sexual immorality is bad. God designed sex. And when God designs something, he doesn't make it suck. Right? But even the sex, even your sexual desire, I'll put it this way. Repetition, uh, repetition shows insufficiency. And here's what I mean. The very fact that you have to do something more than once shows that whatever you're doing is insufficient to do what you were doing, like, completely. For example, you have to take showers, let's just say every day. Ish. All right? The very fact that you can take a shower once like, you can't just take a shower once and you're good, right? You've got to repeat that over and over. It's insufficient. Same thing with brushing your teeth. That is insufficient to make your breath great, to just do it once. You've got to keep doing it. Even, even the pleasure of sex, after the thousandth time in a row, would become agonizing, physically, 
emotionally, mentally. If you had sex a thousand times in a row, it would eventually become painful. Why? Because sex is insufficient to fully satisfy you. Sex was designed to point you towards a greater pleasure. And that greater pleasure is Jesus Christ. You will never exhaust the pleasures of, Je of Jesus Christ. You will never exhaust the pleasures of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Your sexual desires are not bad or evil in and of themselves because they point to a greater desire that was always meant to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, you were bought with a price, and now you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what should you do as the temple of the Holy Spirit? Verse 20, so glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your physical body. Does what you do with your body shine a giant spotlight on the greatness of God? Or does what you do with your body shine a spotlight on the intensity of your sexuality? Does it shine a spotlight on your impulses, on your desires, on your sexuality? What is the focal point of what you use your body for? Salt Company, what you do with your body matters. It matters. It doesn't just matter physically. It matters spiritually. What you do with your body affects your soul. Because here's the thing. Your body isn't your body. I know that tomorrow your professors and your fellow students, or maybe some of you in here will say, well, it's my body, I can do with it what I want, right? And I'm saying, no, it's not. You were bought with a price. Your body is not your own. So you don't get to determine the purpose of your sexuality. You don't get to determine what you do with your body. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't get to determine that. Because ownership determines purpose. You were bought with a price. So flee and glorify because you were bought and you are not your own. Stop acting like your body is your own, like your eyes are your own, like your hands are your own. They're not your own. Flee from sexual immorality, Salt Company, like you would from a burning building. 
Because the greatest pleasure you will experience in your college experience and in your life is not found in your sexuality. It is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And if and when you get married, God wants Christian marriages to be hot marriages. Right? Like, sorry if you grew up and your parents' marriage was kind of bland. If you never told your parents to get a room, like they misunderstood their, their, their sexuality in Christ, right? God wants you to enjoy your sexuality and he has given it a context. Don't rob yourself of that. Don't rob your spouse of that. Of getting to experience the joy and the pleasure of your sexuality Yes, and when it is in the context for which it was designed, even that is an act of worship, showing the greatness of our God. Don't settle for the counterfeits. Come on, don't settle for the counterfeits. Sexual expression when you're not married is fool's gold. It's really shiny. It is worthless. And of no value, flee from sexual immorality. Let's pray. God, I hope that your Holy Spirit can say what I didn't say, can, can fix whatever I said that was wrong. But God, I just ask that you would help these students in this room right now to see the great treasure of Jesus Christ, the value of Christ, the pleasures of knowing Christ. That when they are tempted in their sexuality, God, that that, that would be a bitter taste in their mouth because of their greater taste for you. My oh Lord, we thank you for purchasing us with the blood of your son. You could have been no more generous towards us. And so God, I ask that the Holy Spirit within us would stir in us any way that we need to purge sexual immorality from your temple so that we can glorify you with our bodies for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.